Let's take our Bibles, please, and join me in 1 Kings chapter 19 as we talk more about trusting the Lord. 1 Kings chapter 19, we're in a series that's talking about Elijah. We were in a study last Sunday night or Sunday morning that talked about that idea of rejoicing in the Lord, trusting Him. We made observation last week that the Bible tells us multiple times to rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice, to count it all joy. And that is really a passage that talks about, makes it difficult, but talks about idea of just knowing that we're to be trusting the Lord at all times. Let me make an observation about trusting the Lord. It's easy to trust the Lord when everything is going good. When everything turns out right, when all of a sudden things go the way you want them to go, then it's easy to trust the Lord. When all of a sudden, if there's an evil, it turns it around real quickly or a trial or a trouble. Give me an instance. There's a flooding that took place years ago down in Alabama. This river is flooding and there's a barge coming down the river with two large, pushing two large, um, there's a tugboat coming down the river, pushing two large barges filled with coal. And as they got close to this bridge, they knew that they couldn't get under because there was a malfunction. The floodwaters were too high. So the tugboat captain decided what he would do is they've done this before when this region would flood. They would let the barges go underneath and they would uh, get to an island straight ahead and there on the other side of the bridge and there they would uh, dock or what you would say, they run ashore, run aground. And then the barge would back up and go upriver and come around this channel and then come back and pick them up. And this is the normal procedure for times like that when this river was flooding. Okay, so the, the man, the head of the tugboat brings the barge up. He unloads his entire crew on the two different barges. They go underneath and they're guiding it so that it would land at the island on the other side, even though the waters are high. And the tugboat captain decides he's going to turn this thing around like they've done before in flooded stage and then they're going to get out of there. The problem is... The water, he underestimated the current. The current grabs the tugboat and twists it sideways and takes the tugboat underneath the bridge. And as it disappears, the captain is still at the pilot's helm there in the top. And so the people run to the other side of the bridge to figure out how we're going to rescue this captain. And when they go to the other side of the bridge, the tugboat flipped totally underneath and it comes out with the engine still running, the captain still at the, at the controls and it continues down the river, catches up with a different two barges and pushes them down the river. Now that one's easy initially to say, oh no, terrible, terrible. And all of a sudden you see it turn out in the next few minutes totally different than what you thought. Then we can praise the Lord. It's really good. It's really exciting. When things turn out the way you want them to turn out. When things turn out the way it works for everybody. That's easy to praise the Lord. It's easy to get excited. But what happens when things continue to get worse? What happens when things don't go the way we want them to go? What happens when all of a sudden the difficulty of the pressures the illness, the finances, the job, the conflict with your neighbor. What, what happens if they don't go away and the things continue? Then it gets more difficult. Or it gets more difficult when you watch the news. To trust the Lord when day after day and week after week things get hard. Here's, here's an editorial. Don't, see if you don't agree with this. Somebody talking about how difficult it is to live in the day and the age that it is. 
He writes, the world is too big for us. Too much is going on. Too many crimes. Too much violence and excitement. Try as you will, you get behind in the race in spite of yourself. It's an incessant strain to keep pace and still you lose ground. Do you ever feel that way? With the busyness, with the pressures, science empties its discoveries on you so fast that you stagger beneath them in hopeless bewilderment. The political world is new, seen so rapidly, you're out of breath, trying to keep pace pace with who's in and who's out. He goes on and makes this comment. Everything is high pressure. Human nature can't endure much more. Do you agree with that? It feels that way? This is from 1833. Times haven't changed in the difficulty and the pressures and the idea that people are, you and me, we face difficult days. We face difficult problems. And at times those difficult problems, they overwhelm us. Elijah developed what we said last week, a sure case of the blues, overwhelmed by a trial that was an amazing trial, a difficult trial for him, for this godly man. In 1 Kings 19... We started talking about it last week that Elijah is going through a trial. Now, what's unique is, is this. You know, this isn't the first trial the man has gone under. He has gone under several trials, starting with chapter 17, when he was told by God to go into the wilderness, I'll have birds feed you, there will be a brook of water. All of a sudden, after a year, everything dries up. There's no more water. That's a trial. That's a difficulty. He goes, and God directs him to go to Zarephath. There he goes to Zarephath. He's living with a widow in one of her rented rooms. God's providing miraculously for them, week by week, day by day, by refilling her foodstuffs, her food supplies. And then her boy dies. That's a trial. Now, Elijah has faced trials before. He's had difficulties. So don't think 1 Kings 19, he's a novice. He's a new kid on the block. He has had difficult moments. But then what happens is he has that contest on Mount Carmel where he's competing with the prophets of Baal. And they call down fire from heaven. Prophets of Baal can't do it. Elijah does because he's worshiping the true God. The fire comes down from heaven and it laps up the sacrifice, proving to the people that Jehovah God is the real God and that they should turn their hearts and their lives to him, which they do. As we've read now the last couple of times we've been in this text, that they say, what do we do? The Lord God, he, Jehovah, he is our God. They turn to him. And after three and a half plus years that Elijah's been working at, preaching for, praying for, revival in the land, it's happened. It's finally turned itself around. That's when 1 Kings 19. The queen of the land hears about the revival. She resists it. She wants to get rid of the man who's leading the revival. So she sends a death threat to him. If she wanted to kill him, she'd send an assassin. But she wants to discredit him, so she sends a death threat. Elijah reads the note, and he runs for his life. We talked about this last week. We looked at the passage, verses 1 through 7. You read it through of 1 Kings 19 where he says that he is so discouraged, he is so upset about the situation, he runs to Beersheba. He leaves and the country totally leaves Israel, goes to the southern nation of Judah, and he runs, he abandons his servant, he goes into the wilderness. And when he gets into the wilderness, according to verse 4, he calls to the Lord and he says, It is enough. Take away my life. The prophet of God wants to die. He's had it. He's to the point where he is is quitting living. He is so discouraged by the pressures and the difficulties. God deals with him, as we'll see in the next few moments, and he goes further into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, God has a place where he wants to meet with him, in a cave. 
and have a conversation. In the middle of that conversation, Elijah doesn't budge. He is determined to just vent, to make sure that God hears that he is justified in what he's thinking, no matter what God says. We read about it. In 1 Kings 19, verse 8, He arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God, and came thither unto a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've slain your prophets with the sword. I even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, God said, go forth. Stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind went, rent the, raw, the mountains, break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What do you do here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, slain your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said unto him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you come... Anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshai, shall thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphath, of Abel Meholah, shall you anoint to be prophet in your room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. Him that escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Interesting text. Interesting text. Here you have Elijah overcome by a trial so, so insistent that he's right, that he ends up in the pit of discouragement, wanting to die. He's so discouraged, and God has to deal with him. God has to try to get him out of this pit. Try to get him to change, to stop being so discouraged, so depressed. How do you help somebody? Who's so distraught? How do you help somebody who is ready to quit Christianity? Quit living. Quit your marriage. Quit having the job. How, how do you help somebody who is so defeated they can't think straight? They, they run for their life because they're afraid and then they turn around and want to die. They start exaggerating the situations. Everybody's trying to kill me. It's only Jezebel. They totally desert their friends. How do, you, how do you do this? How do you help somebody? In this text, God is just a phenomenal counselor, doctor, healer to Elijah. How he helps Elijah, and I'm going to give you several thoughts as we go through that you can use to help other people out or you should look and see and say apply to your own life if you find yourself in these moments. They are not given in an order of importance. They are not given that they are all together or none. It might be one of these aspirins that you need to take, not all five, but they are all valid points of how God deals with somebody who is stressed. One of the first things I note is this. 
Take is how we should respond when we are really, really, really discouraged. Take care of our body's physical needs first. Make sure you take care of your body's physical needs. In this text, you have Elijah physically worn out. We talked about this, that Elijah has done the contest for the whole day. He then prayed for an extended period of time. He outran 20-some miles the chariot to the city of uh, uh, where the king was living after the contest. He then runs 130 miles from, from uh, the northern country down to Beersheba. Then he goes another two. 100 miles into the wilderness. And he is so tired that when God deals with him, he sleeps him for an extended period of time. And then when he's after that, he's moving 40 days to 200 miles. That's pretty slow for, the, for that day of travel even. But watch how God deals with this man. God in his grace, the first thing God deals with is not, okay, Elijah, let's sit down, let's do a counseling session. Watch what he does. The man is saying in verse 4, it is enough, I am not better than my prophets. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, verse 5, behold, an angel touches him and said, arise and eat. He looked and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruise of water. He did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for thee. God in his wisdom sends this angel to minister to him and the angel doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't have a spiritual counseling session with him. He deals with his physical needs. God addresses that idea that you need to sleep. You need to eat. God allows him to have a long sleep. God nourishes him. Is it possible that when we are discouraged, that our bodies need to be refreshed? Is it possible that God in his wisdom knows that at times when you are under despair, when you are in distress, that when you feel the tensions from work or whatever, you don't sleep good. And when you don't sleep good, the cycle of discouragement even gets worse. And when you don't eat good, it gets worse, and it gets worse. And God says, okay, instead of taking two verses and call me in the morning, God says, I need to deal with you as a complete person, that a part of you is the physical, and before I can deal with you spiritually, i got to get you in sync physically. i got to get you to sleep so you can think. i got to get you to eat so your body is working and functioning. And then God leads him all the way to Mount Horeb. We already read this section. Further away from the revival that's up north, the revival that's already collapsed, that he's going to have to try to recover. But God takes him further away from the point of pressure and tension and difficulty with Jezebel so he can talk with him, so he can minister to him. Can I, can I make several observations about the wisdom of God in dealing with an individual who is stressed, an individual who is discouraged? The wisdom of God is this, that it is proper and good to address physical needs, to deal with the physical needs just as well as the spiritual needs. It is so important that somebody who is struggling, somebody who is discouraged, they may need, they may need to sleep. They may need to eat for a period of time. They may need to rest before we get to the juggler to get to the heart of the issue. In fact, there is nothing wrong with using modern medicines, nothing wrong with using the professionals that may say, listen, you are so stressed, you have just lost a spouse, you haven't slept for weeks, days, you may need to take some medicines just to help you to get some rest so you can function. 
Now, I understand, and I know this is true. I am convinced of this in my heart, that we are living in a day and age that everything seems to be resolved by take some medicine. Every behavioral issue. Instead of disciplining and training, oh, we just give the kid more medicine, and all of a sudden the kid will be okay. I think we over-medicate. But at the same time, from the Christian element, from the Christian community, is it appropriate at times to take a little wine for the stomach and understand the context that was medicine in those days? Is it proper and appropriate to take medicine? Listen, somebody who is diabetic, if they don't take the proper medication, will it affect their behavior, their attitude? If there is somebody who has had a child and they're, in, they're suffering postpartum depression, do they need to have some medication to help get their body in sync again? Yes. Is it appropriate if somebody has the tendencies and signs that they are indicative of being bipolar, that they get to have some type of wine for the stomach, some medication so they can think clearly? I think it's so appropriate. And God in his wisdom says, let's deal with the physical. Let's get things calmed down. Let's talk with them physically. In fact, I think it's appropriate that we look and say, biblically, there are times you need a break. You need to move away from the place of pressure, the place of difficulty that is overwhelming you. There may be those moments. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus has sent out his disciples. He has told them to go out and preach. They have cast out the demons. They have, they have had conflict. They have had challenges from those who have resisted the gospel, from those who are demonic forces against them. And we read, the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus, told him all things, what they had done, what they had taught. They're excited. They're, they're, they're enthused about how the Lord has been working. But then Jesus said, come apart. Let's go into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going to have no leisure. Listen, there were still needs going on. There was people that still had problems. People still needed healing. There was still something that needed to be addressed. But Jesus, in his wisdom, said to his disciples, enough is enough, you can't handle it anymore, or you're going to be no good in the long run. He is with his disciples. After the ascension, we talked about this in Sunday school briefly. This is the text where they go out fishing all night. They catch the fish. After Jesus says, hey, throw it on the other side of the boat. They bring the fish to shore. And when they come to shore, and Jesus has to have a conversation with Peter. Peter has, he has, he has not had a conversation with Peter to deal with his denial that took place on the night of the crucifixion. This is the time that he needs to say, Peter, do you really love me? Three times. And then he has to reassure Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, take care of my lambs. If you love me, feed my sheep. He's got to restore Peter. That's really important. But before he does that, it is interesting to me that they come to shore after fishing all night, and before he has a conversation, Jesus says, let's sit and eat. I have to talk with you about something really important, but we've got to make sure that we're all, we're, you know, we're, we're taking care of you. You haven't rested all night. You're hungry. It doesn't work to talk with somebody when they're hangry. Right? So Jesus deals with the physical. I think there's wisdom for us to say that we not ought to discount and say the, the physical doesn't matter. Let's just deal with spiritual issues. You better deal with the physical issues as well. You need to stop and say, we, we need to help this person out. And that there are times where we need to let other people help us physically. 
when we are beyond the capabilities and the physical pressures are mounting. There's wisdom to take care of the physical first to address it. Okay? Number two. Again, not in order of importance, but it's here. Get a good confidant. Get somebody that you can talk with, somebody that you can counsel with, somebody that you can, you know, Elijah, you are really seeing everything from one point of view. You've got to have a good counselor. You've got to have somebody who can try to get you to see it from a different point of view. God's confident. Counseling is amazing. God takes him to that cave and talks with him, and God shows great compassion, great compassion in that God, with all the busyness of everybody else, the revival that's collapsing, God takes the time to meet with Elijah. He's got other people. Elijah's not the only prophet. Elijah's not the only one having problems right now. But God takes time to talk with Elijah. Compassion. Good friend. When he meets with Elijah, he doesn't say, Elijah, I don't understand what you did. You blew it. Elijah knows he blew it. That's why he wanted to die. And so God in his grace doesn't say, you did wrong, you did wrong, and just jump on him. He already knows that. And so God in grace, in kindness, doesn't chew on him. Doesn't kick him when he's down. Instead, God deals with him in a kind way. God asks him a question. What are you doing here? What are you doing? Oh, by the way, when, when God's dealing with him and asking the question, he says, what do you do here? It's not because God doesn't know why he's there. God led him to Mount Horeb. God doesn't ask the question when he brings it up twice to him. He says, you know, what do you do here in verse 9? And he doesn't ask him again in verse 13, what are you doing here? It's not like God is an idiot. That God doesn't know what he said, that, that God misdirected him and said, oops, I lost my Elijah. God directed him here for a reason. And he's asking him pointed questions, not because God wants information that he needs, but he wants Elijah to put it together. He wants Elijah to think this through. God knows what he's doing there. Elijah, have you considered this? Because Elijah has one point of view, his, and only his. And his point of view is one that is really harsh. So God is saying, stop, Elijah. Just stop. Examine yourself. Examine what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Think this through, Elijah. God is so wise in this and just posing questions. But God, in his compassion and his wisdom, is one that's filled with conviction. What I mean by that is this. Elijah is insistent that his point of view is correct. He is insistent in justifying his actions. When God says, what are you doing here? Remember in verse 10? I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. By the way, that's true. He has in the past been very jealous for the Lord God. He has... He has resisted Ahab and Jezebel. He has been faithful to the Lord God. He has stood against the prophets in the contest. He had had them destroyed. He is, there is no doubt about it. He has been faithful. He has been jealous. He has been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. But when he goes on and makes statements... The children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, threw it on the altar, slain your prophets, and I, even I only am left. That's an exaggeration. That, that's not tr fully true. 
He's wrong in what he's saying. And God, in grace and yet in conviction, dealing with him, he doesn't let Elijah get away with inaccurate information. God's going to correct this and say, you're not the only one. I know, I know you're just really upset, and he, he asked him twice, and he's in saying the same thing twice. Verse 10, 14, says the exact same thing. And he says, I, even I only, and God's not going to let him get away with his self-pity, that I and I only. I'm the only one who's been jealous. I'm the only one who sees this thing clearly. I'm the only one. God's not going to let this happen. God, in his wisdom, stops him. Here, here's my point. You want to get over discouragement? Get around a godly person who will tell you the truth. Not tell you what you want to hear. Not agree with you 100%. Not, not um, affirm your point of view just because it's your point of view. Find someone. Someone who you can trust who will tell you when you are wrong. And then, by the way, listen to them. Someone who will challenge you. Someone who will say, enough is enough. Someone when, when you, are, you are really crying the blues will look at you and say, hey, come on. It's time, time to put on the big boy pants and grow up. With compassion, with grace. Find a friend who will be a true friend who will help you. Now, you want to help somebody? who's discouraged, somebody who's distressed. Be a real friend. Be compassionate. Be patient. But make sure you speak the truth. Make sure that what you do, you tell them what God says, not what they want to hear. You don't tell them if, 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 they are, if they are in the depths of moments of despair over, you, you name it. But if they're wrong, you've got to tell them they're wrong. That's what happens in this text. Okay, don't let, don't let, if you're a friend like God to Elijah, don't let him in, keep on in his erroneous thinking and accusations. By the way, he was making accusations. He was accusing everyone. I and I only am right. I'm the only one who has stayed here. In fact, this is what God deals with him. They need to readjust thinking. Here's how God helps him to readjust his thinking. With the trial that he's going through, it's too much, take my life. In other words, I can't handle it. It's way, and we all feel this way. We feel our trials are beyond our abilities. We do. And we feel this way. Nobody has the problems I have. There's even songs about that. They are from generations ago. Nobody. Okay. <laughs> and here he is. He's saying, I can't handle it. Do you remember this? God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted over to you are able. Do you remember what this text means? God knows you can handle whatever trial he allows in your life. He knows you can handle it. He knows you better than you know you. And I I'll go back to the, the statement, not to be silly. God knows the hair in our heads. We don't know that. God knows us so intimately, he says, you can do this. You can do this. You sit right now and say, I can't. Yes, you can. I know you can. I will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able. And what I'm doing, I'm allowing you to be stretched, to become more mature. 
to get your thinking under control, to learn how to do this in the future the next time, to get your, to get your response under control, to get your praising under control, get your praying under control instead of panicking and pouting. So think about this. Readjust your thinking that whatever the trial is, whatever the difficulty is, remember, God in his wisdom knows what I can handle. Readjust your thinking about yourself. Elijah has said, I have been very jealous. Implication? Look at all I've done. Look at me. Look at me. I deserve better for all that I've done in the past. This is Elijah's thought. This is the way Elijah is functioning. This is how Elijah is is operating. God doesn't even address this and say it directly. But what God does afterwards is says, I want you to go get back in the way and I have a job for you. And he tells him what to do as if to remind Elijah, you're not the one in control, I am. You don't lay out your job schedule, I lay it out. Do you remember what you told the king? I am the servant of the God of Israel. Okay? You are my servant, do what I tell you to do. Go and anoint Hazael and Jehu to be kings. Okay, So you sit here and you are saying about what you think and how jealous, I've got a job, you do your job. Okay? Correct your thinking, you're the servant, I'm the master. I and I even am the only one left. By the way, by the way, this is an, this is an audacious attack on all the others in Israel. The other prophets who he knows are there. Do you remember when he met Obadiah in chapter 18? And Obadiah informed him several days ago that there are a hundred prophets that I've been protecting. They have been faithful. Jezebel is seeking their life. I have them in hiding because, because they have been so faithful to the Lord. Then why is Elijah saying now, days later, weeks later, I'm the only one when he knows that that's not the case? Why is he exaggerating the situation? I told you this last week. When we get discouraged, what do we typically do? We exaggerate. We, we maneuver the facts to justify what we're saying or what we're doing. And God, in his wisdom, says to him, that's not, not true. That's not. not only is there 100 prophets, but I have 7,000 more in the nation who have never bowed to Baal. They've never kissed the statue of Baal. You're not the only one. You are not the only one. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Elijah, you got to get your thoughts right about other people. Other people in the sense that you're really laboring them. There's other people who have been faithful. You're not alone, Elijah. There's others who have done the job. Others aren't as bad as what you think they are. Elijah, stop. Stop. Now, this is why I say a good counselor, a good confidant, telling him to readjust your thinking. Get your head on straight. I, I don't mean, mean to be harsh. Please understand when I say this, when I use these illustrations. You're not the only one who has faced a serious illness. You're not the only one who has lost their job. You're not the only one who has to bear, have buried a loved one. And I'm not trying to be insensitive, but I want you to see what God is saying in this text. God is saying, others have gone through, 
Others have made it. You will make it. And don't, in your moments of loneliness and discouragement, start lopping off the heads of everybody around you. Don't do it. Don't do it. Readjust your thinking, especially about God. When you're discouraged, Elijah comes to a moment where he's thinking, this is an impossible situation. I am here. God, you ask me, what am I doing here? I'm here because I've been jealous for you. I've been serving you. And I'm the only one. And things aren't changing. It's just, it's impossible. Go forth, stand upon the mount. Verse 11. Behold, the Lord passed by in a great strong wind, maybe called Florence. Rent the mountains, break in pieces the rocks. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord's not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Verse 12. Look at the end of it. After the fire, what comes? Still small voice. Look at verse 13. Behold, there came a voice unto him and said, what are, you, what are you doing here? Can I put it together? When you and I feel like it's an impossible situation, God often speaks loudly in silence. Sometimes his silence is deafening. It is moving. There's this huge wind and earthquake and fire. But it says very clearly God's not in them. God's not in those things. In the sense that for Elijah, yes, did God bring them about? True. Is it under God's control? True. But he wanted Elijah to realize this wasn't the way he was working at this moment or going to work in this moment. He was going to work through the still small voice. It is interesting to me to make this observation that in the middle of Elijah's great trials, God was not weakened. Elijah was Elijah was distressed, not God. God still had power. Elijah, I still control everything. Jezebel is not in charge of everything. I still control nature. I haven't lost an iota of power. I haven't lost an iota of my control, even though Jezebel is out after you. It's interesting to me, to go a little bit further, that God doesn't always work the way we think he should. Elijah has been having a whole series of miracles. At Kareth, the birds bring him food. There's the water. God directs him. A voice comes and says, move. He moves. He goes to Zarephath. God provides a miracle of replenishing the crews of oil on a regular basis or food. There, the boy dies, the widow's son. God does a miracle to raise the boy up. They go to Mount Carmel. They get to Mount Carmel. They have a contest. There's the miracle of the fire. He goes and prays. There's the miracle of answered prayer that after three and a half years, all of a sudden the rain comes at that moment on cue. He outruns the chariot 20-some miles, leading the four horses of the chariot that he's running in front of them because God was with him. Miracle after miracle after miracle. Power after power. This guy is used to things happening quick. He is used to flipping the switch and the power of God is there. And all of a sudden the power outage has taken place. And he's really distressed. He's upset over it. And then God says in the still small voice, Elijah, I'm going to work in an unusual way for you. You're used to dramatic and dynamic, but for you I'm going to do something different. I'm going to work the way I normally work. 
I'm going to work through normal, mundane things which aren't glamorous. But I'm still, going to, I'm still bringing revival around and about. Look at what he tells them to do. Elijah, I want you to go and to anoint Hazael and Yehu. He mentions that in verse 15, 16. Do you see that? Go and anoint Hazael to be king of Syria and Yehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. By the way, this doesn't, this doesn't take place in the next few days. This doesn't happen right away. These two guys don't become kings at the same time until 21 years after this text. And he goes on, it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hazael shall Yehu slay. Who's the him that will escape? The house of Omri. The house of Ahab. The house of Jezebel. These are the guys that take Jezebel out. That stop the Baal worship 21 years later. These are the kings that put an end to it. God isn't, God isn't all of a sudden done with creating revival in Israel. He's going to make it happen. And Elijah, you're going to have a role to play in this. You're going to anoint the two kings that in time, as they come to power, they are going to stop the Baal worship, and they are going to resume Jehovah worship. It doesn't last, but they resume Jehovah worship. And it's going to take two decades, but it's going to happen. In other words, that what I'm doing here is I'm working in a way that you're not used to. But this is the way I normally work. I provide for families, typically, by you going to work day after day. It's the normal grind. I usually provide healing for people by going to the doctors, taking the medicine, taking care of their bodies. The way I normally work to bring somebody to faith in Jesus Christ is use somebody on a, on a daily basis where they are living the grind of Christianity at work, at school, at home, on a regular basis. You want it quick. You want them saved right away. But they're watching you. It's the day-by-day grind. You, know, you, you want a great marriage, and I can make a great marriage, God says, but it's going to be the daily grind. This is the way I normally work. You've got to work at loving one another, submitting to one another, and working at the relations, working through the tough times as well as the, the good times. I work through the normal. I work through the mundane, God is saying to Elijah. That's the way he works through most everybody. Elijah has just had the privilege up to this point that everything was miraculous, and now he's coming down to earth. And God is saying to him, this is the way it normally works. That what you need to do is you need to work stop just day by day by day. And I'll still work if you're faithful. Faithful day by day. And normally the way that God works and speaks best to us and builds us and molds us is not that you come to church and you hear one pizzazz of a message and that keeps you going now for the next six months. That's not the way it works normally. God works and builds you and grows you through daily time with him, the still small voice. God works and builds and grows you and changes you through the still small voice of some message. And you get under a diet of it on a regular basis where you get under the word as much as you can and get into a Bible study on Sunday school or morning service, evening service, and come back in the middle of the week and God in that still small voice builds you, encourages you. And we say, God, do it quick. I'm grieving. Get me over the hump quick. I'm stressed. Take away my trial right away. 
God, I, I, I've, got a, I've got a marital problem. I've got a family problem. It's my family. <laughs> God, change everything right away. And it's that still, small voice dealing with you what you need to do on a daily basis to grow, to grow, to grow. Here's something else that comes out of the passage. Get involved in ministry. Get involved in work. Get involved in productivity. Go, and literally it says, return, get to the path where you should have been anyway. Go back where you belong. Return in your way. And, by the way, anoint Haziel and Yehud to be kings. Who does the anointing back in these days? That's the prophet's job. That's what you're supposed to be doing. That's what you were employed to do, Elijah. That's your job. You anoint the kings. You're the one that says, this guy's been picked, this guy's been picked. This is the hand of God working, so go back and do your normal job. Get back to doing the everyday things. Go back. Get to work. I know you're isolated yourself. I know you're in a cave. I know you've run away into the wilderness. And by the way, wouldn't you feel like running to a wilderness at times? If that paycheck would come to the wilderness and we didn't have to work, most of us would find a wilderness spot. God says, no, that's not the way it's going to work. Get to work. Get to work. Get busy doing what God wants you to do. The lessons worth noting, we can make several of them. Elijah, I still have a job for you even though you have blown it. If you repent, I'm still going to use you. That's the amazing part of this text. You have stopped the revival. You have accused me. You have accused others. You wanted to die. You are so distressed. I'm still going to use you. I'm still going to work with you. Another thought is helping someone who is discouraged is to get the person to be productive. Do some, do some activity that's productive. Do some laboring. Do some training. Anoint Elisha to be your servant. That idea of anoint Elisha to be your servant that he mentions is train him. Remember there's a school of prophets that have been going on that Elijah started? You take this new student and you train him. Get involved. Get this person going. Train him. Do it. You know, invest in his life. Though discouraged and he wanted to isolate himself, that's not God's prescription. God's prescription is just the opposite when you and I feel this way. God's prescription is, get busy doing what I've called you to do. Get, you've got problems, you feel like, I quit parenting. I'm done. No, you have to parent. I am done with friends. No. I am done with marriage. No. I am done with church. No. It's not God's method. It's what we think. It's what God says. Get around godly people. What he tells them to do is he go and anoint Elisha to be your prophet in your room. You're going, he's going to be your replacement. You've got to train him. And basically what he's telling him is, Elijah, you get involved with Elisha and let Elisha get involved with you. Minister to him. He, he doesn't know what you know. Go and minister to him. Can, can I throw out the, just a, a rampant thought? It's, it's revolutionary, I know. You want to get it over discouragement? Go and visit other people who don't have it as good as you do. You've got problems, and you do. You've got problems, 
Go and visit some of the widows. You got difficulties, go to the nursing home and visit some of the people who can't get out of a chair. That'll give you perspective on your problems. You got problems with finances? Then volunteer. Serve meals for those who are homeless. That'll give you perspective. The idea that God here in this text is very simple. God is saying what you need to do is develop some relationships and start ministering with that person. You know, maybe you need a friend who is a friend that needs you. But the way that you become a real friend is not to bellyache and gripe together, but to serve together. Pray together. Do a Bible study for outreach to some mutual friends. Join in in some type of ministry here or elsewhere that you can just work together. Don't find just the friends who will whine and cry with you and belabor and have the same critical thoughts of God or of others. Don't do that. Find somebody who will challenge you. Find somebody who will say, hey, this is a weak spot in your life. You need to grow. That they won't be blind to your and my weaknesses, but they will help us. And there's moments we need help. We need to be stopped by friends, and we need to be told, hey, wait a minute. This isn't a good direction. This isn't a good thing you've done. It's helpful to us to be challenged that way. I'm grateful for those of you who do that to me. I need it more. Does it discourage me? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is it helpful? Absolutely. We need to listen at those moments. What we need to do is, like Elijah, realize that, hey, listen, this is, a, this is a reality of life. This is the cures that God gives. And so we bring it all together and we bring, end up with these thoughts. Beware. Beware you're going to face some of these difficult moments if you're a believer. And sometimes they're very severe. Beware. But also be patient and be persistent. This isn't going to turn around quickly or you're dealing with somebody and that somebody that needs help, they're not going to turn around right away either. Especially if you're dealing with some physical issues. If you're dealing with some chemical imbalances that need to be addressed, it takes some time. It might take some time for that grieving person, for that difficult situation. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient with yourself. Sometimes we want out of these pits and it takes some time for the still small voice to be able to point out why we're there because we are so blind to our own weaknesses or our own contributions because sometimes our discouragement is because we blew it. Sometimes our discouragement is because we made a bad decision. We ran. We gave up when God said we should keep going. And then when God deals with us, we go, but I have been the most zealous person. And we argue with God. And sometimes it takes time, like Elijah. It takes time for God to break down our pride to point out where we are blind and insistent and stubborn. Be grateful. Be grateful that there is forgiveness in these moments. 
that like Elijah, when you've run away and you've stopped the entire revival that was ready to go, after three and a half years, you jeopardized everything that would take 20 years to get back to where they were. God forgives him. God uses him once again. We'll pick up here next week with that idea. But let me end with this before you shut up the books and distract anybody else. Just hang on for these few seconds. This is where we start. We come to the Lord this morning and we say, God, is it me? What have I done that has contributed to my discouragement, my distress? Do I need to confess? Do I need to ask for forgiveness this morning? Am I an Elijah who justified my reactions? And I need to stop and say, was that right for me to be so reactionary and to swing the pendulum like I did and run away and quit? God, what do I need to do this morning? We start with looking to the Lord and saying, am I right with the Lord? You're here this morning, and the place that you start to being right with the Lord is you make sure that you are born again. Make sure that Christ is your Savior, that you have put your faith and trust in him. We have staff headed right over to that door, over that area. There's prayer rooms down that hallway. They are willing to talk with you in these next few moments, if you want, and show you from the Bible how you establish that beginning of that relationship with Jesus Christ. You're a believer. You want to talk with somebody this morning. As we quietly bow our heads, close our eyes, and we pray and think these moments, Lord, what do I need to change? What do I need to do?